Thanks, Roy. Glad to hear Roy's doing well. Baron Von Thoman. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, so, so I think it may be officially winter now. So, uh, I'm sorry. Is it not officially yet? When does that happen? Okay. Have him seen out. <laughs> Something tells me that wouldn't be your first time being kicked out of a uh, public church service. All right, so we are in the book of Genesis in the ninth chapter. Um, I, uh, we, we, we didn't do the reading this morning because um, there's, there's a, really a lot to go over in this section, so I'm not really sure exactly what's about to happen, but we'll see together. We'll figure it out together. Um, but we're looking at this story in the book of Genesis, and I say story cautiously, right, because you can say story and then you can liken that to like children's books and other kinds of stories that we read that might be interesting but not historical, and it's important that we remember that the Bible is, is, is um, steeped in actual history. There's a really interesting documentary on YouTube that was made freely available by a, a, a former Mormon who became a, a Christian and, a, and an apologist. And he, he, he said he started kind of seeing the cracks in what he believed as a Mormon um, through comparing their scriptures to history and realizing there was people groups that, that there's no record of having ever existed, mass graves that are nowhere to be found, animals that don't exist on certain continents. Um, and so by comparing the various uh, books of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, he, he came to a true faith in Scripture, which aligns to history and, and in several instances have corrected uh, historians. And so this is a really interesting picture of that because um, you've got the entire earth population, except for eight people, has died. They have been buried under the waters of judgment. Uh, God has uh, elected eight people to start over with. And genealogies all tie back to these eight people. And a very interesting kind of schism is set up inside this family between the brothers that we're going to see. Um, but more than that, and I was just talking to Willie about this just a few moments ago, more than what was immediately happening in this story, more than Shem, Ham, and Japheth, more than the wives, more than the children that are being born. This, this is a, a story. This is a picture. This is part of Genesis arc of demonstrating the sinful nature of humanity and our totally inescapable corruption. We are completely corrupt in every way whatsoever, and there is no way to find your way through your corrupt nature in a way that glorifies and honors God. You cannot do it. And the book of Genesis lays out every possible scenario where you would think, well, 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 maybe if God allowed them to see how terrible corrupt nature in its wildest form could be, and then killed everyone and started over with just one family, and then maybe if he didn't reserve any blessing from those people and, and bless them specifically, they would start out and, and would be without sin because they know they've seen all of this. And in fact, that's what we'll see in this story this morning, except they cannot escape their total corruption. There's a, a danger to us as people, every single one of us, myself as, as cheapest of sinners, and all of us can fall into a trap of pride. 
Um, the trap is always there. Right? We're always vulnerable to the trap of pride. It's what pride of the eyes, pride of life. Uh, pride is one of those things that will get us, right? Um, in fact, Proverbs warns us that before a fall uh, comes pride. Um, and so pride is something that we must be looking out for. In fact, living in a community of believers, living among one another who believe similarly is helpful for pride. Uh, we, we can help one another in finding evidences of pride and even encouraging each other in our growth. We can be encouraged that we're growing. You can tell your brother or your sister, you can build them up by saying, you know, um, I watched you go through this and I, just, I want you to be encouraged that I was really blessed by seeing how you handled that. Or over time in your life, as I've gotten to know you, you used to be bristly and, and rude and kind of mean and ill-tempered. And I've seen that change about you, and I think that's evidence of God's grace in your life. Community is very important to the believer, and I would submit to you that the believer who removes themselves from fellowship is not a believer. A believer who removes themselves from fellowship among the body is uh, resistant, is disobedient, and is not being convicted by the Holy Spirit if they continue in that way, and therefore were not of us. And so we've got this scene with this listless boat floating on top of the waters of judgment. The entirety of earth has been covered in water, completely flooded, killing everything that was not sealed in after the Lord shut the door to the ark. And what you've got is someone who, by all intents and purposes, could take pride in who he is. Noah is... 500 to 800 years old in these portions that we're reading from. Pretty seasoned believer. We become impressed with ourselves when we hit certain milestones. There are several in life that are important. You're 10, you're a double-digit midget, as they say in Pennsylvania, which we should stop saying, it's just ridiculous. You turn 18, that's cool, or at least it used to be, because you could kill yourself with cancer because you could smoke cigarettes, but... Now I think you have to be 21, so that's the next gate. You get to enjoy alcohol and smoke cigarettes if you're in Pennsylvania, because these are great ideas for your health. Um, then you turn 25, that's good because you get a discount on your insurance. Um, and your parents are glad because now they can cut you loose from their insurance. Off you go into the wild. You turn 30, that's cool because you know you now you're, you at least have some respect at work. You're not a kid who's under 30 anymore. Then you turn 40 and it just gets really cruddy from there because now you're 40. Your body starts to wind down. Your knees pop and squeak. And there's nothing after that. Life is basically over after 40. <laughs> Some of you are laughing because you're like, 40 is old. Some of you are laughing because you're like, 40 is not that old. Now place yourself at 500. Imagine the life you see at 500. Place yourself at 500 and having been declared directly by God's lips that you are righteous. Been declared by God's lips that you're righteous. You've been chosen among the entirety of earth as the leader of your own family that your family would be saved through this action. Imagine the opportunity for pride. 
You've just been floating listlessly over the waters of judgment as all the people around you have been mocking you, are drowning and dying. I imagine the initial scratching at the wood on the ark was unbearable. But they say that drowning is kind of quiet, right? It's just bubbles. You don't hear the screams anymore, or the, the pleas for help as people try to tread water for a days at a time on their exhausting diet of vegetables, you know, like, like a vegan with no energy. They really can't survive the toils of real life. We're in the 601st year on earth. They're going to be able to eat meat now, so life will start to get better. They'll learn barbecue. There'll be arguments over what's better, beef or pork barbecue, but the pork argument will come much later. So they'll perfect the brisket for now, short ribs. Life is pretty good. Noah pops the top on the Ark Model 1, 27 days in to the second month, they are able to come off of the boat. So when they find out they can eat meat now, Noah in verse 20 of the ninth chapter builds an altar and worships. He knows God immediately. He wants to worship God. He builds an altar. And God reveals to him something wonderful. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now this next part is interesting and instructive and helpful. He's not going to curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The very intentions of the heart is evil. What the heart wants is evil. Anything that flows out naturally from the heart is evil. These aren't easy words. And they're consistent across Scripture. My life verse, Jeremiah 17.9, if you've been here more than twice, you've probably heard me say The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Not even its owner can fully understand their own heart. And by heart, I don't mean the the four-chambered flesh unit in your chest that can be swapped out for a pig one. I mean the locus, the center of who you are, where decisions are made, the center of your being, who you are as a person. That place is deceitful above absolutely everything and deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 read like this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That would be a universal all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I remember one of the first times my my father and I had strong rub. I wanted speed skates, which sounds dumb. And he thought that I should sell some of my things to raise some of the money for them. And uh, my cousins had stolen some things, and he thought that I should sell those stolen things to pay for half of my Christmas present. And I remember telling him, you should never buy me another Christmas present again in my life because I was so offended by this concept that I should pay for half of my own gift with stolen items. 
And uh, so we made a deal, and he never again bought me a Christmas gift. That is stubbornness from both of us. This is what it's like to be a person. We just, we love our stubbornness. Those of us who are stubborn are prideful of our stubbornness, even though it's idiotic to be stubborn like that and to ruin relationships like that. We love it. We love nothing more because our hearts are deceitful and sick. We can't even understand them. And that's why life is the way it is. We are twisted. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What great news. That you are completely morally corrupt. That you are of the same fabric. That even after reducing earth to eight people who are all immediate family members, within moments of coming off of the the, the judging waters, being sealed in by God, they will sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 Read like this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I'm going to pause before I read that again. Dead in trespasses and sins. If we were to go down to the morgue of the mortuary, maybe I've shared with you before, I worked with, or uh, I was friends with a guy who was a mortician, and I used to do a Bible study at his house at six in the morning. And when I say house, you're thinking of something normal. It wasn't normal, it was above where he worked. I would knock on his door, and, and every morning I thought, this is it. This is the day that he kills me. Obviously, someone who prepares dead bodies is weird. And he was weird. His name was Chris. Love him. Great guy. Um, but he was weird. And I knew confidently that if he was to kill me, he could very easily slip me into some faux bottom of some box, right? He could liquefy me, pour me into a drain, and I would be gone forever. If you were to allow Chris to have killed me, and I was a dead body, or if I was to say, Chris, I know you've got the hookup. I need a corpse. He was say, I got the one for you. Just came in, fresh off the truck. Doesn't smell, a little stiff, nice and cold. Already embalmed it. And I was to say, awesome, I need you to bring it in. We'll figure out how to get it up the stairs here. We're going to lay it right here. And each of us came up and, and put life-saving medicine in front of this dead body. Guess what it would do? Nothing. That's what it means to be dead. There's nothing left of your senses when you're dead. When you're physically dead, your body doesn't respond. It can't help itself. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Describing the human condition, it is helplessly, hopelessly corrupted. It can do nothing to save itself. It is dead in its sins and trespasses. And by it, I mean you and I mean me. Now this is describing people who are believers, which says you were once this, just like everyone else. That's why we don't come to church with our nose high in the air, thinking we've done something wonderful. Our salvation is a gift. We were a dead body with the life-saving medicine in front of it. We were completely disinterested unless God did something incredible, like draw us. 
We could not respond. We're incapable. These are words of ability. And so for those of us who, by the grace of God, have seen the message of salvation, who have been effectively called, responded, and who are now believers, so much of what we do at the point of our salvation is maturing. And, and, and by maturing, I mean just failing all over the place and growing from that. It's like watching some kind of a, a, a pseudo-intelligent uh, robot animal bounce against the walls and kind of learn how wide the hallway is and be able to go into a straight line. Scriptures say that we are conformed more and more and more into the image of Christ over time. Compared to the refiner's fire, you can imagine uh, building metal up, heating it up to whatever its melting point is, and then the impurities rise to the top, and they're scraped off the top, flung to the side, allowed to cool, and this process happens again. This is the Christian life. It's not a purposeless life. Jesus doesn't take the wheel of your life. We wouldn't apply that in any other aspect at all. God, if you wanted me to go to work, I would wake up and there would be gasoline in my car. No, you go put gasoline in your car. Or you plug it in and allow it to charge and you pray that it doesn't catch fire because you can't put it out. And you pray that we're able to find some other vulnerable people group to strip mine their land of nickel so that we can make sure that the earth isn't hurt by gas. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29, they will come to this new earth. It is fresh. The waters have receded. The boat has landed, maybe on the top of Mount Ararat. And they're off into their new land. And we're going to see a great charge. I'm going to tell you, this is like the garden again. New opportunity. Same thing. What are they supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply. Except this time they get to eat meat. Sweet gig. No more catch and release. Verse 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole earth were dispersed. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, these boys, I say boys because they're children of Noah, they're about a hundred at this point. They've seen some life, right? I mean, think about what they've lived both sides of the flood pre flood earth, post flood earth is what they're walking into now. Things are, are different. They'd watch their father, who's a, a, a preacher of righteousness, he wasn't silent about what he believed. Noah wasn't keeping things a secret that he was hearing from God. He was telling people. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's I say that he's a preacher of righteousness because the scripture says he's a preacher of righteousness. That's how he was described. Genesis chapter 7, verses 13 through 16. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. If you're doing the math, that's eight. 
people. Entered the ark, verse 14. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, all of flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. Shem, Ham, Japheth, Noah, and their wives were all shut in for salvation by the Lord God. Genesis seven sixteen. They passed over the waters of judgment. You just imagine knowing what's below you. They're not disassociated from these people who are now floating for a bit, breaking down, sinking to the bottom of the ocean. They're not disconnected from these people. These are people they know that they interacted with. It's not like they built some kind of like a creepy compound and a bunch of beds with their shoes on it, waited for a, a comet to fly overhead so they could commit mass suicide. This took years, years, decades and they lived among these people. Imagine the relationships. When you're 500 years old, my gracious, some of you have lived here for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. And you know everybody you go around here, right? The, the, the thing you're most prideful of is you know what that building was three stores ago. And that's how you refer to it, as though nothing's changed. Imagine being 500. How much history is packed in your head? How much do you know all these people? You know all of their, their kids, you know, imagine showing up to the party like you're 500 years old. Oh, I remember when you were this tall. You know, now they're like 200. They were shut in for salvation together with Noah, the whole family, and they passed over the waters of judgment. Parents, wives, couplets of animals, everything that creeps on the earth, everything with breath, winged animals and birds. They watched the judgment of the world around them. And Jesus describes that this is, this is an object lesson. Jesus tells us that this is a lesson of what's to come. In Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39, he's teaching, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. He's describing this world that they lived in. They're caught up in their day-to-day -day lives. Eating and drinking, giving in marriage. They're sending out tweets and updating their lunch on Facebook. And sending funny reels and memes. They're, they're going to work and they're making sure they respond to all of their emails because that's important. You have to email people back and to respond to, to voicemails and send people texts. And they're so caught up in this, they don't realize the warning that's being given. The preacher of righteousness is sharing a warning about a coming judgment, but they're too caught up in their day-to-day -day lives. What's important is getting a promotion or being seen as important at work. That's more important than the coming day of judgment. And we look at that and we say, how could they not know he's building this huge boat? It looks like the looks like uh, Joel Olstein Stadium in Texas. Shouldn't they pay attention? 
Is it that different, the world that we live in today? I mean, the, the very meaning of words is being changed right before our eyes. It's, 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 it's poppycock. It's ridiculousness. The, the whole dictionary is changing. You can't change what words mean on plain truths. It's like I, I've seen this movie before. Hans Christian Andersen wrote a whole book about it. The Emperor's Clothes. The guy's naked and everybody's saying they love his robes. That's the world that we live in. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark by invitation from God, and God shuts the door. Shimham, Japheth, saw Noah build an altar. See that in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20. Noah built the altar. He took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird. He offered burnt offerings on the altar to God. He began worshiping. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, He said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. God's not repenting of what he's done, meaning like apologizing or saying, gosh, golly, I wish I hadn't done that. He is allowing us to see that he, he, he did this so that we could see it, but it didn't change anything about the nature of who we are because we are evil from our youth. We don't even have to be taught it. You don't have to teach your child to be disobedient. They're recalcitrant little snot factories who just want to take whatever it is that you have. They would love nothing more than to break or ruin all of your possessions. And I know this because I've got five of them. And all they do is break and ruin all my possessions. I'm not even going to buy anything until the next last one's 18. And then I feel like I can have things again. I told John this morning, my, I turned the, the, the seat of my car into a small swimming pool full of coffee. Why? Because I have a ridiculous coffee maker. It can only make 4 or 12 ounces, so I opt for 12, which means I have to put it in a cup. It doesn't fit in a cup holder. And I know what you're thinking. John, why don't you just pour it into... Uh, a to-go thermos that would fit in your cup holder. Well, that's because it's in someone's room, somewhere in the house. And that's what's wrong with kids. Sinful little creatures. They know that's my cup. So seeing God echo this fall, this curse against people, that our hearts are evil from our youth. Seeing that it extends from the garden, even though God judged all of life, started over again, it extends into this post-flood life. It's still true because we've learned in Adam, all die. They cannot escape the lineage to Adam. The kid won't go away. It's familiar. In Adam, all die. And they are still attached to Adam. Even though God has judged everything, killed all, they are still, this eight group of eight people are still 
found in Adam. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so God promises not to curse the ground again for that reason. He gives the promise of the bow in Genesis 9, 8 through 17. He restates the command to populate the earth, Genesis 9, 1. I say humanity is, again, handed a pretty sweet gig. Hunt fish, make babies, hang out. Verse 19, we see that the whole of earth is going to be repopulated through these folks. But just before that, at the end of verse 18, there is a parenthetical notation. Just a quick sidebar, a quick note, a little aside that's top of mind here for, for Moses and important. It says, Ham was the father of Canaan. And then it moves on. But we'll come back to that point. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine. And he became drunk. And he lay uncovered in his tent. Uh, the existence of alcohol and their ingestion is not presented as a sin specifically in Scripture. I want to be careful with how I say that um, because for some people, it's very sinful to drink alcohol. Uh, some people, for whatever reasons, uh, have developed a problem with that and should avoid that. Um, for other people, it's, it's benign. Um, it, it can be enjoyed and that's fine. The existence of alcohol in its ingestion is not expressly sinful. That's a legalistic presentation of alcohol. However, drunkenness very clearly presented as sin. I would also caution that the first mention of Scripture around alcohol and drinking is around a problem that will enter a huge schism into all of life. Think about the impacts of what's going to come out of this scenario. And Noah in a sense, brought this among his family. Drunkenness is the sin. Like, tattooing is not a sin. Tattooing to the appeasement of gods is a sin. Here's one, Baptists hate. Food is not a sin, but gluttony is. Proverbs 23.20, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. That one hurts a little bit, because I like Brazilian barbecue. You know what I'm talking about? You get a little red chip and a green chip. And for me, you're not going to see red for a while. And you're also not going to get away with bringing the chicken over. I'm going to send you back, and I want the prime rib and the steak guy. I want the shrimp guy. I know the game. I know how this is done. You're going to see green until you bring me the lamb and the good stuff. But the Proverbs caution us against gluttony. It is sinful to be gluttonous. Does that mean that I can't go out and enjoy Brazilian barbecue? I hope not, because, man, I love that. But it shouldn't mark who we are. We shouldn't just be this, just, just shoveling food. Have you seen there's a, a YouTuber? I don't even remember what the guy's name is, but apparently he went to school somewhere around here, and he is just destroying his body with food in front of YouTube. I mean, getting grotesquely, morbidly obese. We're not to be like that. 
God has given us a life and a ministry on earth. We should want to be healthy for it. We should want to be able to extend our time in that ministry. We should want to be able to live as living witnesses before God to a watching world around us. And we should want to bring Him glory. So this is a lesson of the hope of Noah also to keep short accounts with sin and keep primary our relationship with God. There's lots of pulse points in our life that we can look to to see how things are going. What, what, what gets me angry? Does that help expose elements of pride in my life? Does it expose areas maybe where I'm resistant to authority or leadership of the church structure that Jesus himself put together? That is not good fruit on my life. And I need to be actively looking for those things. We all do. Interestingly, gluttony and talk of being a drunkard are often found together. They pull on the same thread, which is things to excess. Um, all things can be beneficial, right? All things can be okay and unsinful, but not everything is, is beneficial. Not everything is beneficial for us. And we have to, we have to find that. We find Noah here in a state of excess. I don't think we're stretching to say that. He's, he's indulged in the wine, and now he's butt naked in the tent. Um, that's a lot of wine, guys, I think. Maybe it's not for you, and if it's not a lot of wine for you, you find yourself in this situation, you should not be drinking uh, wine at all, probably. But here's, here's Noah. Uh, this is the same Noah, remember, who was faithful, who lived among the hustle and bustle that Jesus described in Matthew 24 of day-to-day -day life caught up in all of these, these different things that are going on, but still we find that, that Noah wasn't distracted by all of life. He still would go to work on the ark. He's constructing this ark. He's listening to God. He's a preacher of righteousness. He's, he's in the world, but he's not, he's not of the world. He is five or six hundred years old. He had his sons, 600 at the time of the flood. He's, now we find him on the backside of this most colossal trial. Decades of building a boat where everyone mocked him. Um, everyone he knew except for his uh, three sons, their wives, and his own wife were all killed under the waters of judgment. And he gives up his self-control in this moment. Now, did he know what wine was? Is this something he had experienced before? Don't know. Um, could, have, could have been his first Mad Dog 2020. Not sure. But that it, scripture doesn't concern itself with that. It gives us this scene where we see sin will enter the world and impact it deeply, very, very deeply. This preacher of righteousness listed among the faithful of Hebrews 11, very advanced in his years, seen a lot of life, is still just as vulnerable to sin as anyone else. And that's a great lesson for us. No matter how mature you think you are in the faith, you are just as vulnerable, perhaps, as you were the first day of your belief to sin. James talks about temptation in a terrifying picture, like a, like a fishing lure, just bouncing around in front of your face, and almost by instinct, you snap at it. And that's the moment when sin is born. I would say that when we wander, and when we stray, and when we drift, Sin lurks. Wander away from God, 
wander away from our, our devotion and prayer, wander away from one another, sin lurks. Only pride would suggest to us or convince us that it's not true. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. We've not, God has not descended down and told us and others that we are righteous. He's not delivered to us in person a covenant. He has not saved everyone in our family and killed everyone else on earth. So why would we have more, more right to pride in who we think we are than Noah, who now sins and brings huge sin into the world? Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, so we came back to that, that thread, Ham being the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. Now notice there's a period there. There's not a lot of words after that. That's verse 22. 23 picks up with what Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or what Shem and Japheth do. In verse 24, Noah wakes up. Between the end of verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23, people have inserted so much nonsense. It's insane. There is a Jewish midrash, which is just rabbinical teaching, extra biblical, that says that Ham castrated his father. And so his father was not able to have a fourth child. And that's why uh, Canaan was the, the fourth child that Ham would end up having. And that's why he was the one who received the curse. Uh, people would say there was sexual things that happened in the tent where Ham um, some, in some way sexually abused his drunken father. Scripture is silent on that and gives you really no reason to think any of that is true. It doesn't speak to it. It's just because we're weird that we want to go to those places. Scripture is silent as to what happened. What we know is that Ham did want to make a spectacle of his father. Was there some kind of a jealousy, some kind of an anger towards his father, maybe because he was seen as righteous? Um, did, did maybe Ham want to be seen as righteous in the family? Who knows? What we know is that in verse 23, it picks up and he goes to get his brothers and says, check it out, dad's passed out naked in the tent. You guys should go have a look. And we see some character differences among the siblings in the family with how they receive this information. What we know, because we have the benefit of having the entire scriptures in front of us, is that God takes leadership and headship and patriarchy very, very seriously. And perhaps you could step back from that and say, well, that's just awfully mean of God to do that. Um, but we don't know the whole story. We also don't understand fully that what God is doing is telling the story of himself for the purposes of salvation of the entire world that will come after this. He is uh, sewing a thread showing that people had every potential way to find salvation and that not only did they not, they could not. And so he is, he is protecting these lines and he is going to sow impossibilities through these lines and these scenarios and these situations and allowing us to see the level of detail of these families is actually incredible because it doesn't hide from bearing facts. Um, you know, when you, you watch someone who's lying, they want to avoid giving too many details that could be contradictory. Think about what Scripture does. It lays so much to bear. It says, I reduced the world to eight people. Regrew it from there. Created nations. John is going to dive deeply into the table of nations and, and explain that whole uh, passage to us, which will, be, which will be wonderful. And the scriptures doesn't hide from that. 
Um, in fact, the scriptures even say that we should test all things to see if they're so. And Paul talks about the Bereans who uh, faithfully attended church and listened to the teaching and then took that teaching and compared it with the word to see if it was so. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two other brothers outside. Um, if there is one thing I know about kids, it's getting mad at kids. And if there's one thing I know about getting mad at kids, it's usually because they did something that is the very kind of thing that I would do and I have done. That's usually when I'm most frustrated with my kids, when they're exactly like me. And so we have to be really careful as parents because our kids can live under our thumb and we can apply so much pressure and make them live down there under our thumb where we couldn't even survive that we crush their very spirit and willingness. And so we have to be really, really careful because we don't see God dealing with us in that way. We see grace and mercy and a lot of room and a lot of leash. Um, and believe me, I'm not standing here presenting myself as killing it, right? I've probably done an awful job. I'm sure my kids would, would love to tell you all about it. But God is serious about leadership and headship because he is stitching this story together in such amazingly specific ways. Ham probably had these kinds of character traits that were just natural to who he was. For whatever reason, he wanted his father to become a spectacle and you know, your, your, your home kind of can tend to be like you and your personalities talk, you know, everybody's family has little jokes that they share and it's funny to them and everybody just, you know, you're weird. Like, I don't even know why that's funny. And you just, you have those things and there's just personality traits, whether it's nature or nurture or, or, you know, how everybody grew together. It's just, you start to kind of see things and behave in specific ways together. And so by his grace, God took Ham and looking forward to the fourth son, Canaan, who was going to be like real bad among all these people. And he camped them off and he set them off to the side so that they wouldn't corrupt this nation that he was going to put his covenant, his line and his story of salvation through. That there was going to be a really hard tension um, between Ham's side of the family and Shem and Japheth. And that plays all the way through Scripture. Scripture doesn't hide from it. It'll tell you all about it. We see tons and tons of evidence for it. And so there's a lot of gravity to the kind of sin that is happening here and how this will separate the families. So Canaan is cursed and splits off to another nation separate from the others, and this is of great benefit to the, to the rest of the family that they would be separated off. And maybe, again, you would step in and say, well, gosh, this is, this is terrible. Why, why, why would God do this? Why would God make this happen? Well, Ham did exactly what he wanted to. Right? It's not like, like God kind of whispered in his ear, hey, you should make fun of your naked dad. Uh, that's, that's what he wanted to do in that situation. God, by his grace, had a plan of dealing with that. And that doesn't mean these people are put off forever and have no way to redemption. We'll find in, in Isaiah would, would, would cast forward a desire for these people to all be reconciled again, together. This is the ugliness that is sin. It ruins families and relationships, and you can always trace it back to sin. It is always an issue of sin. Um, I said earlier this week, you, you show me a church that's had a schism or a major break, I'll show you a congregational church. Because it tends to encourage people to jockey and try to make decisions and try to make things go their way. And, you know, their messaging in the background. 
I've been a part of business meetings at church, which are some of the most hideous examples of sin that you ever hope to see. I hope you never have to endure a church business meeting. I'm convinced that church business meetings are just life-giving to Satan. And so we see a lot of tension that's going to flow here throughout the entire history of Israel, extending from the, the, the pre-flood fathers all the way through the generations that follow. In fact, if you were to follow the, the, uh, the line of Shem, um, Shem is the father of, of Abraham. And as we continue and we go into Genesis 12, uh, we'll see that Abraham is moving along with his wife, Sarai, and they're coming up to the uh, land of Egypt. And he's afraid that that they're going to be very interested in his wife. And so they lie and, and try to hide away from this situation. This is an extension of the line of Canaan because Ham had Cush, Put, Canaan, and Miserium. You say it. That's how I say it. But it would translate in Hebrew to Egypt. And so these, these families and these generations, they can't get away from one another. These situations keep playing themselves out. There's constant tension Genesis chapter 50, verse 11. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Ebel Mezrab. It is beyond the Jordan. You see constant tension between these families, all going back to the initial eight that survived after the flood. And so this story of Noah and his sons and the immediate moments after landing on dry land serves to demonstrate the will of man is corrupt. God has given every opportunity to restart, every opportunity for them to do well, but even in a group of eight people having lived through the waters of judgment, they still have contention among the only people on earth. It's like siblings. You have to have an empty seat between them in the back seat of the car when you go on a car trip. You have to make them look out their own window. That's my kid's favorite joke now that they're older, is the older boys will laugh and they'll tell the girls, you have to look out your own window because that's what we'd have to do with our boys. Is just look out your window. Don't even look at your brothers. These eight people, the only eight people left on earth can't even get along. Genesis Continues, verses 26 and 27. He also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Shem is blessed. Japheth, because of that blessing, will live in the tents of Shem, and be covered by that blessing, will benefit from that blessing. And Canaan will be the servant of Shem. So the servant to the servant is how this is, is being set up. And this character that flows out of that line of Ham through the, to the Canaanites and many others, Egyptians and Assyrians, will provide wickedness and strife for Israel across all the rest of the Scriptures. God, by His grace, foreknew the wickedness of the Canaanite generations and put space between they and Israel and gave rules about how they would now interact into the future. Leviticus 18, verse 3, you shall not 
do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Because there are people chasing after their own desire, trying to thwart God's plan, trying to do anything that was ungodly. And so God separated the peoples. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 6, we read that Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morai. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. This tension won't go away. Genesis chapter 34 and verse 30, Then Jacob said to Simon and Levi, You have brought me trouble by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. It is so easy to read these stories and detach yourself from understanding what this means. I and my household are going to be destroyed. This means you and your kids who are, who are like kind of basically camping, living on the land, are going to be literally overrun by armies who want to hurt your children and your family and kill you and take you over and keep you as slaves and take your things. These are very serious situations. And so rules were established around cultural separations from these practices. Genesis 24.3 Make you swear by the Lord God of heaven and God of the earth that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I will dwell. We see more in Genesis chapter 28.1 But God's aim is always restoration. Isaiah 19.23-25 In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. God is always after restoration. We finish our section in Genesis 9 and verses 28-29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah are 950 years and he died. This is the end of Noah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. He died. That's it. He's done. Noah is going to be the 10th patriarch in the record. And he holds this unique position, this linkage between pre-flood world and post-flood world. And he's this instrument that demonstrates that all humanity is still linked back to Adam. And so th this is the hope that we see in this story. It's hope for us because this tells a story about us. It describes us as being linked back to Adam as well, but it's still true of Romans 8, 36 through 39. As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the confidence and that's the hope. And that's the story that we get to see in, in Noah. Is there's, it's not that there's something that we can do to get better. God has demonstrated. He knows us exhaustively. He knows we're but dust. Our frame is weak. 
And so he has, by his grace, allowed us to see every possible restart, every possible do-over, living under blessing, being given this cush life, and still we resist because, and that's why he's not going to judge the earth again, because he knows that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And by his grace, he allows us to see that. And so we would do well to remember those of us who are in Christ that, like Noah, we too have to remain cautious and vigilant and not complacent, but seeking the kingdom first. It helps us watch our own lives and our hearts and guard ourselves against sin. So for those of us perhaps who aren't believers this morning, I would encourage that God's plan is not that you do better and avoid sin. God's plan is to see that you are but dust, that we are like that dead corpse laying in front of this platform. It cannot do anything. And so the only thing left, if God is calling and wooing us, is to respond to the gospel, to turn to Christ, to have Him be Lord and Savior, and then to live a life of devotion and lordship under Christ. That's the call. And for those of us who are believers, the call is also clear from this passage, is to live lives that are honoring in, in the midst of daily busyness. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, that among all the busyness, Christ is going to come just like the, the shutting of the door of the ark and the opportunity for repentance will be closed. And so we need to share that message, like Noah, a preacher of righteousness, we need to share that message with those who are around us. And we need to remember that we ought not be prideful whether you're 500 years on the earth been declared righteous by the mouth of God and used to save the entirety of earth, you are still vulnerable to sin. And that's true of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this wonderful message. We thank you that you've given us your word, your full counsel, that we wouldn't grope around in the dark, tricked and fooled by anything, but God, that you've given us your word and that we can lean into it and understand who you are, and that we don't have to be afraid to, to test things. We, we should do that against your word. So God, I pray that you would encourage us through the story of the, of the ark, through Noah, through the example of the sons, even in your grace in separating Canaan from the families that would repopulate earth. And then God, to be encouraged as well, that you desire to reconcile all of it. You're wonderful and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who would please stand and join?